Welcome to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. I'm Amanda. And I'm Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us today. Welcome back to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. So this spring has been off to an interesting start, to say the least. Uh, Soils around the state have been both wetter and cooler than normal. And I know if you're in the same boat as a lot of us, the planting windows have been really short and we've been worrying a lot about how we're going to find fields dry enough to make planting progress. And planting is important, but getting the conditions for the seed and seedlings in a good state that they can endure after planting is going to have a big impact on plant survival, health, and then ultimately yield. And so there are some soybeans in the ground, maybe not as many as we'd like, but those have had to deal with saturated soil conditions at some point since they were planted. Most of those have. So these conditions have made me start worrying about the potential for seedling diseases, um, some things to be concerned about when we're planting into these wet soybeans, and whether or not we're going to see yield impacts of these conditions at the end of the season. So joining us today is Dr. Ann Dorrance. She's a professor in the Department of Plant Pathology, and her expertise is in the area of soybean disease management. So we're really excited to hear from her today. Welcome, Ann. Oh, thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. So with these spring conditions, one thing that I know plays a key role in protecting those seeds until they emerge are seed treatments. So could you talk a little bit about seed treatments and when you recommend seed treatments and why? So the seed treatments, especially in this 2019 season, are playing two roles. One is to uh, kill uh, the fungi, the seed-borne pathogens that could be carried on the seed. Um, If we dare to remember from last fall how wet it was, how rainy it was, we had a lot of late-season fomopsis and actually even purple seed come through. So... Some of the fungicides that are on that seed are protecting that and they're, they're going to take care of that seed. So where that fungus did not in, infect the germ, if it's just on the outside of the seed, that's actually enhancing the germination and helping that seed get off to a great start. Also with a little serendipity, that's also going to help protect against the true fungi that are in a lot of our fields, especially that are, have heavy residue. Those are the heavy residue fields also have a lot of true fungi. But the pathogens that I'm really worried about for this year are the soil-borne pathogens. In Ohio, especially where we do have replant issues consistently, our heavy clay soils and our poorly drained soils, those are the home to a complex of pathogens called water molds. And just to give you an idea, when we go to try to isolate those pathogens, Uh, from the field, we incubate them in saturated soil conditions for two weeks or more. So just think about the weather we've had where the soils just haven't dried out. So these then, these soils are primed. The pathogens are all ready to go. So all they're waiting for is for the farmer to come and plant that seed. It's unprotected. It's going to get rained on again, and then there's going to be an infection event. Had these soils been dry, intermittent rains with good drying in between, those pathogens would not be primed and ready to go. So we actually have a difficult time recovering them from the soil when we, when we, when we treat it that way. 
So for this year, um, on those C treatment packages, the list gets longer and longer every year. We've got materials that are specific for the group of pathogens called water molds, which are the pythiums and phytophoras. And then we have other fungicides that are there to protect against the seed-borne fungi, as well as the residue-borne fungi like the fusarium and and there's Rhizoctonia sclerotia that are in the soil and those types of pathogens so that when those conditions are right, that seedling's got a fighting chance. Interestingly, once that plant is up and growing, once those first leaves are formed, that plant can take care of itself. Um, but as a young seedling, uh, a lot of these pathogens really attack these young plants. That's interesting about the growing stages you mentioned there at the end so once they get a little not very far along um, but that kind of brings us back to the situation that some of us might be in this year where that seed's been in the ground for a week or two or maybe it's emerged but then we get cool weather again and it's just kind of sitting there at just emerged be something like that at what point then can we stop yeah. being as concerned so we we go out typically and we count our seedlings to see if a seed treatment even works because we work we have a partnerships with a lot of companies to help pick out the best products for ohio farms and in that process I don't go by calendar day because the calendar doesn't equate growth. But if we go, we try to count when those seedlings are just emerging, just cracking out of the ground. We can sometimes tell how well a seed treatment works at that point. But those counts are best taken at that unifolia when you just have that, you know, that pretty little round leaf on the soybean plant when that's emerged. A seedling that is sick or not doing well will have a yellow cast. It'll be dying, it'll be missing. Sometimes you can dig up and you'll find the, the decayed seed. Uh, the roots will be brown and soft. And if it's submerged, if it's a flooding injury, it'll actually have a smell to it. And that's from flooding injury. That's just because the CO2 has built up and actually killed the seed. When the plant has enough oxygen, it can grow. And if there's no pathogen, you'll, it'll be a nice, beautiful white root. The, the leaves will be nice and green. There won't be any wilting and they'll be, everybody will be happy. But if they're not, they look pretty sad when they're wilted. So what's the best way? You mentioned that sometimes the symptoms that we see might just be a result of the flooding. What's the best way to tell if it's a pathogen that's attacking the seed or if it's just an environmental effect? If it's environment, the smell is going to give it away. Um, if you've ever walked in a field that's been submerged, I mean, everything has died, right? So it's not just the seeds that'll die. The other thing that I've noted over the years is if the plant, especially at later growth stages, that outside um, tissue on the root, you can just peel right off and you'll be left with like a, looks like a white rat tail, the, which is actually the root steel. So it will kill everything. In the seeds, they'll just rot, but they'll be whole. Well, they'll just die. They'll be whole and they won't be brown. And in both cases, they'll be soft and mushy. They, don't you like all my technical terms here this morning or this afternoon as we go through here? <laughs> 
<laughs> so um, just kind of, you, you just get a feel for these things over the years. If we do have a crop that's been sitting in the ground, unemerged seeds there, any concern with that seed treatment sitting on that seed for an extended period of time before it starts to grow? Not at all. If that seed treatment is effective. Now our, our temperatures have been really cool. So a, a plant under normal sterile soil conditions would also emerge very slowly under these temperatures. So it's always good for farmers and crop consultants and educators to, to go and dig up some just to make sure that how they're doing. But that seed treatment will protect that seed as long as it's under the ground and grow. And I've had seed treatment sit for three weeks and I've still ended up with a perfect stand. Once the environmental conditions change and they get that seed growing, um, they're favorable for seed germination and growth. Things will take off. This even goes if the seed is in storage. Uh, seed treatments have to go through a lot of testing under very different environmental conditions. So as long as that seed is in, in the farmer's storage, because we've been storing seed for almost two months this year, as long as it's dry, um, that seed treatment won't harm that seed either. So those are two good ways. We actually take seed out of storage I'll get a seed treatment to test and it may take my students two or three years to get all the tests run. And as we store it in cool, dry conditions and that seed is still viable with that long a time period. If it's sitting in a hot barn, then it's, you know, then the seed is gonna, germ is gonna decline just from those hot conditions. Yeah, that's really interesting. I don't know, normally we treat it and it's hopefully straight out to the field. It's not a concern I've really ever considered in the past. So that's an interesting thing to learn. When it comes to having our seed treated, what amount and what types of seed treatment do you recommend? Also, has there been any resistance buildup with as far as disease seed treatments go? That's a good question. So in Ohio, we were the first to identify some of the water molds are or were never uh, sensitive to the metal axle seed treatment. That's why on the company's packages, you'll see two products for water molds and then one or two products for the true fungi. So in, in each company right now has their own complex, their own uh, mixture that addresses the needs for Ohio um, for these heavy, heavy soils. So to right now, because of the way the companies um, are organized and also some of the agreements that are in place between the different companies, they've each come with their best seed treatment mixture for their product lineup. So it's not like a frog eye situation where I can tell a farmer here, here's this list of fungicides, you can pick any one of these three. In this case, when people buy their seed, the seed treatment is part of that overall purchase. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if there are concerns, then farmers really need to bring that up with their supplier as far as we might need some changes made to what's put on the seed in the first place? Or how does that work, I guess, within the industry? Um, yes, and then also um, we 
here in Ohio State, I'm always begging for seedlings that are that look sick, sick and unhealthy. And that way we recover those pathogens and we test them in the lab to see, to monitor what the fungicide sensitivity is. So we put them through a series of tests just to make sure to see if those seed treatments are working or they're not. Um, and that's a way that I can give that feedback to industry too. So I'm, I'm an independent lab and can tell people, you know, what is or what's not working in Ohio. And that's a big help when we have those partnerships in place. So through that testing, what diseases are most prevalent in Ohio? Too many, <laughs> to be honest. Um, we've got, because of our heavy clay soils, um, we've, in our replant situations, those are primarily caused by the water molds, pythiums and phytophoras. So we've probably are managing those as a complex, um, not just a single, you know, there's 25 different species we're managing. Then for foliar diseases, um, frog eye leaf spots, which is more typically thought of as a southern disease, has really become established in this state. Then moving on a little bit later in the season, then we have several stem rot diseases. We've got both southern and northern stem canker. Sclerotinia white mold shows up periodically. And then last year, unfortunately, for the first time since the 80s, we had a lot of seed quality issues. So some of those same old pathogens that were around in the 80s, we were picking up in very high distribution last year across the state. So uh, farmers in Ohio at this eastern edge of the soybean belt, because of the rainfall patterns, have, have a much harder time. The one pathogen, though, that's probably pretty consistent across the whole Midwest, though, is soybean cyst nematode. And with soybean cyst nematode, um, we're in the midst of a survey. We now, based on several of these pooled together, our preliminary data is showing that only less than half of the fields in the state, um, let me say it this way, more than half of the fields, almost 60% are, we can find cyst nematode, and of those, almost half are at economic thresholds. And we have some fields that I don't understand why the ground doesn't shake when the farmer stands on it. So there's so many cysts there. So that's something that we've really become quite aware of. The other thing that we've noted on some of these fields is that the main uh, source of resistance, the 88788, which is what growers buy, sometimes seed companies listed as, as race three resistance, that the resistance is beginning to fail. So fortunately, it's not gonna be like some other diseases we work with where once that resistance doesn't work, it's kind of an all or nothing. Uh, this is gonna be a slow adaptation. So slowly over time, that resistance is going to become less and less effective. So with these surveys that are sponsored through the checkoff this year and last year as well, um, we will have data for the companies to let them know, hey, this is going to work here or it's not. And so they've got a 10-year heads up to get something new into their system for resistance. So let's talk about for the guys who are lucky enough who have gotten some beans planted and they're coming up. What sorts of, with these continued wet conditions, what sorts of diseases 
are of your primary concern? Well, if they're, if they're up, the first thing they need to do is double check the stand. Um, we're not going to have much time to do fill-in this year or replant. So the goal is hopefully for everybody to, to get everything in the best optimum conditions and that things will come up and we won't have to worry about it. So checking the stand population in most of our talks, I think from Laura Lindsay, we're aiming for 100,000 minimum per acre. Um, if we have good growing conditions for the rest of the year, uh, that should be adequate. Now that we're the end of May, I think we have to bump up the numbers a little bit, but we just need good growing conditions here to, to help us out. For later, early mid-season, I think for especially for Southern Ohio, um, with these rains and all the residue we had left over, if we begin to see early season frog eye, that's one of the things that we'll be getting to scout for around mid-June uh, to see if we had how much of that frog eye from last season overwintered, especially if we go into these fields that have been continuous soybeans and have had yearly annual events of frog eye, that's going to be a concern. For some of these diseases, I know soybean cyst nematode is one of them. The economic impacts that you hear talked about are, are shocking. Would you be interested in sharing some of those numbers of really how big the impact of some of these diseases are, both to yield and economics? Sure. Um, so we've, a lot of those have come from trials where people have planted I had a student in who was working, we had some tests in Southern Ohio, and on a field that had 1,600 eggs per cup of soil, we had a 25% yield loss with absolutely no above ground symptoms. And we know that that was a 25% yield loss because we had that same trial on another field with no cyst and there was no yield difference between the two varieties. We've had other fields that were well in that 2,000 to 3,000 range, and there we really started getting into the 50 to 60% yields. Now remember, a soy, the, the genetics of a soybean right now, if everything is a perfect season, the genetics should give us 100 bushels an acre on average. So we're nowhere near 100 bushels, right? in most of our fields. We've seen some that are getting uh, consistently 80s, but you know there's environmental factors that limit that yield every year. And then there's a certain portion that definitely is contributing annually to yield loss. And if I know that 30% of the fields in the state have 1,600 cysts or more, then that's an easy way to calculate that state yield loss. So, Really, when you start looking at the measurements, looking at our trials, comparing the different um, studies across all the different states, I think we're probably underestimating oftentimes what the yield losses are, uh, but it gives an idea really where some of that data comes from. Now, when we're talking about soybean cyst nematode, in case farmers haven't heard about this yet, there is free um, sample analysis available for them, correct? Correct. So last year we sent envelopes to all American Soybean Association members since the checkoff was, was paying for it and the advocacy that goes on there. Um, we didn't receive very many back. So if somebody is an American, as a member of a 
um, Ohio Soybean Association specifically, um, it's probably still in a white envelope on their desk. And so to go sample those fields. We've also just sent uh, packets to all the county educators. So if somebody wants to get their field sampled, we sent about enough for 25 fields to give a good survey of the state. And the fields to really target in this case are those fields which just can't get above 40. I mean, at this point, you know, everybody should be close to the average or above average. Um, we were at 52 last year, 52 bushels per acre. So if you're not there yet, um, this could be one of the reasons why. So go take a look. If you've got, if you're fortunate, you have yield monitors and you have all that data and you look at that yield monitor and, and you, you know, you think, man, the, the soybeans look good in that part of the field, but it was my lowest pocket. That's, a, that's an area. Now, if it's a flood out spot or it's a weedy spot, actually, if it's a weedy spot, sometimes cysts can um, stunt the soybeans if they're super high populations. I've had that happen even in my own studies um, where the weeds will just kind of take over. They can't compete. Those are good pockets also for cysts. The cysts aren't necessarily feeding on the weeds is that they're weakening the soybean plant so much that it can't compete against the weeds. What sorts of, if we're talking about any of these diseases, I guess, what are the management options that are available to try to lessen the impacts if we know that we have either the disease pressure early in the season or um, we've gotten soil tests back and we know that the soybean cyst nematode population is somewhat high in that field? Mm -hmm. So for, for all diseases, the first one, just like you said, is to know what you have. Know what you've had in the past and then target those fields specifically. So with cyst nematode, um, the best management's really rotation. That's the first place to start because every time we plant a non-host crop, that population will drop by half. So that's our first line of defense. The second line of defense for field crop diseases um, is host resistance. We, all these companies put a lot of money and time into breeding. It's not just all for yield, but they're actually packaging um, resistance because we can't spray everything. Um, it's just not feasible for many reasons. We don't have a deep enough toolbox either to, to try to spray for everything. So looking at what you've had and actually making sure that you've got the matching resistance. And every company rates resistance differently. You've got to work with your seed dealer. Make sure you understand what those scores are. So for those in Southern Ohio, uh, especially where we've been dealing with frog eye, if they would really focus on those frog eye scores, um, they could actually get away from this disease totally. Uh, resistance is there, there is effective resistance for all these pathogens out there. It's just not in every every variety. The second thing is is once you've done that, and there's there's always that variety that everybody loves, but it's just susceptible to everything. Then you're going to have to make those plans over what fungicides to use, and this is really for the foliar diseases. And make sure that you time those sprays when it'll be the most efficacious. Um, just because you see that disease, you know, one lesion at V3, you really may not have to spray until later reproductive stages. 
Conversely, if that disease starts really hot and heavy at V3, V4, we may recommend an early spray just to knock it back so that hopefully you don't have to spray again. But the goal and the, the economics right now, um, the price that we're paying, the least amount of money you can put into this crop, the more profit you're going to have. So really taking a look if, if when you're buying your seed, the resistant variety costs the same as the susceptible variety. So if your seed costs are the same, you know, asking yourself if that super favorite variety is worth that extra money for those added inputs. Will it give you that? Um, if we're looking at the performance trial, yields are not that different in these independent variety trials. So just something else to keep in mind. So the saying, ignorance is bliss, I don't think is very applicable in this case because we have a lot of management options. Um, so if you're have a low yielding field. We have free sampling for soybean cyst nematode, lots of information for those other diseases as well. But like you said, and the cost of seed is about the same, rotating to another crop. Um, hopefully you're doing that across the board anyways, but um, really easy management switches you can make to get these diseases under control. Exactly, and very cost-effective. So is there any other research you guys are working on that you want to share with our listeners? So the lab right now is really focused on identifying markers in, in resistance for companies um, through a diversity of pathogens. So in addition to the seed treatment work I mentioned early on, just looking for efficacy, you know, identifying what the pathogens are in Ohio, we're also really focused on helping companies breed better varieties for Ohio conditions. And that comes from, you know, we find sources of resistance. Um, we find out what type of genetics controls it and what the markers could be and potentially even what the mechanisms are. So that way then when the companies go to put it in their pipeline, they know how to best use it as it moves forward. It's more a little bit at the basic end um, probably more than what my predecessors would have done, but the way the industry works and through their, I mean, basically they're plant factories now, constantly using high throughput methods to develop the amount of seed that's needed for the 96 million acres in the U.S., right? So it takes, you just have to be high throughput at that point. So anything we can do to help that process go faster and better for Ohio farmers, that's what we're focused on. And so to wrap up, um, where can people go if they want to learn more about these diseases, identifying them and managing them? So we've got two places. One, of course, is the weekly corn newsletter. So we do try to update that and write weekly articles, what people are seeing in the state, how to manage what's being seen in different parts of the state. It's a very good resource. If something's happening in one part, it's probably going to happen in the next part of the state next and then the other one is our u.osu.edu Ohio Soybean Disease Site, um, where we've got a lot of our management, a lot of our basic information, and then, of course, um, the fact sheets that are available on, on Ohio Line. All right. Well, Anne, as always, a lot of great information. We appreciate you joining us today and hope to see you out in the field at some field days this summer, too.
No, definitely. I can't wait to get out there. Let's hope we get planted. Thanks for listening to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. Join us again in two weeks for our next episode.